We are in Genesis 35. In 35, things begin to change a little bit. And they give you a little bit of hope that, wow, Jacob is finally waking up to some failures that he has experienced. But at the same time, most of these children are in their 30s and 40s. So is it too late? And so in chapter 35, we see a turnaround in the family. In chapter 37, we see that the family hasn't changed that much. So you're wondering if it's too late, which launches us into the Joseph story, where you begin to see, is there any hope for this family? And that's what the Joseph story is going to basically deal with. So this is the last chapter, or the last two chapters, 36 is just genealogies of the Jacob story only. So in verse 1 of chapter 35, it says, Then God said to Jacob, Go up at once to Bethel and live there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob told his household and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourself and change your clothes. Let us go up at once to Bethel. Then I will make an altar there to God who responded to me in my time of distress and has been with me wherever I went. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their possessions, and the rings that were in, um, that were in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the oak near Shechem, and they started on their journey, and the surrounding cities were afraid of God, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Now there's a lot going on here. First, Jacob, when he was fleeing Esau, way back in chapter 25, 20, or actually 27, when he was fleeing his brother Esau, he, God came to him in a vision of the Tower of Babel-like, except that it was the angels descending rather than man going up. And God made the promises to him. Look, it's not about you. It's not about your deception. It's about me honoring the promises that Abraham and Isaac, I will bless you. And Jacob is like, wow, this is amazing. God is here. I promise that when I return, I will worship you. And he never does. He never goes back to Bethel in all those years. Now, some of it is not his fault because of seven-year deception the seven-more-year deception, the six-more-year deception on Laban's part. But now that he's been back in the land for a number of years, he still has never made it back to Bethel. And so he's never honored that promise. Finally, God comes to him and says, go back and honor your promise. Now, this is the first time ever that Jacob actually repents. That's recorded in Scripture. There might be some others, but not important enough for the narrator to record it. And so we've seen Jacob pray to God when he was coming back to meet Esau, and he was very desperate because he realized he was between a rock and a hard place, and there was nothing he could do anymore to seal his success with Esau. And so he prays to God, and God responds, but then nothing changes. He still puts his least favorite wife and children up in the front to die first, and everybody else in the back, and still tries to bribe Esau and fix it all through his own efforts. So nothing really changes, even though that's the first time he ever prays to God. But you know he repents here because he comes back and he tells his family to bury the idols. And what do you bury? Dead things. And so by burying them, he's saying that the idols are dead, 
and by burying them, he's defiling them, which means they can never be used as idols ever again. And so he buries the idols, which says that if he goes off and God calls to him and he sees, talks to God in a vision or verbally, we don't know. And he comes back and immediately talks about the idols, which means he's known about the idols all along. Yes, he did not know about the idols when Rachel first stole them and brought them to the family, but after these years now, he knows about them. It's very hard because she would have to put him in a prominent position of displaying and making sacrifices to him. That would be hard to hide from him. And so he knows about them, and yet he's tolerated. We're never told whether he worshipped the idols or not, but the fact that he tolerates them doesn't make it that much better. And so he comes back and he tells them to bury the idols. And this is your first act of repentance because to repent means to turn away from something or to remove something. And we have never seen that in his life ever to this point. And so he buries the idols. And now he also tells them to cleanse themselves, which is ritual purification, and to remove their earrings. And you're like, wait a minute. You can't be a believer and have earrings? We don't know exactly why that's there. Um, it could be that these are the earrings that they stole from the Shechemites after they s- destroyed them, and so there's a sense of repenting of that event. It could be that these earrings were specifically adorned in order to represent the gods. We know a lot of jewelry today represents pagan beliefs and all that kind of stuff. So it could be that kind of a connection. Um, and at the same time, it's also hinting and foreshadowing towards the exodus where the Jews are going to take their earrings and their gold. And when they came out of Egypt, they were supposed to melt everything down. They were allowed to keep it, but they were supposed to melt it down, meaning that all those jewelry that had been fashioned to represent the gods was supposed to be melted down into gold and refashioned to something that wasn't peg anymore. But instead, they melt it down and make a golden calf. And so there's a, there could be a connection there as well. So he finally repents and knows that the family responds. The family actually responds. There's no record of protestation, and it could be that they're just going along with it because he's the patriarch and they don't really care, or they really are on board, but we don't know. But there is a sense that they are following him. But the question is, why now? Why after all these years? Why? God came and spoke to him, nothing changed. God spoke to him again, nothing changed. God spoke to him again, nothing changed. And now God speaks to him and he's like, cold turkey, get rid of the idols. And the best guess that I have is it could be that just like the first time he ever prayed to Yahweh was when he realized that he couldn't fix the Laban situation he was coming from and he can't fix the Esau situation he's going into. It could be now that he is looking at his family after all these years and seeing what one daughter was willing to do and what his other sons were willing to do and realizing that his sons don't have any respect for him as he's looking at the long years of the fruit of his parentage, he might realize that he has utterly and miserably failed and that there's really no sense of peace or hope or joy in this family. And there might be in his old age, as he looks back and has a lot of regrets, and he's seeing the logical conclusion. It's, it's one thing to look at your kids when they're six and seven and think that you've seriously screwed up your entire life. It's another thing to look back when they're 30 and 40 and massacring people to realize you've obviously screwed up. And so there could be that there in his old age. 
And he begins to realize something has got to change. And maybe it is that that why God also comes and speaks to him in this moment, because he knows that Jacob's heart is at a place where he can and will respond. And so whatever reason, Jacob finally changes. But the question is, is it too late? So verse 6, Jacob and all those who were with him arrived at Luz and the land of Canaan. And he built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. And Deborah and Rebekah's nurse died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, thus it was named the Oak of Weeping. Now what's interesting is Rebekah's death is never mentioned and her burial is never mentioned, but we learn that she had a maidservant, just like Sarah did with Hagar and Rachel did with Bilhah and, and Leah did with Zilpha. And that's mentioned. And so don't really know what to do with that. It could be that Rachel is not, or Rebecca is not mentioned because he wasn't in the land for that death, but he is in the land for Deborah. But what's interesting is that Deborah is never mentioned in the actual story of Rebecca. You don't even learn that she has a maidservant until this point. And so that's interesting here that don't really have an answer for that. So God appeared to Jacob again, verse 9, and returned from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but your name will no longer be called Jacob, but it will be Israel. So God named him Israel. And you're like, wait a minute, did you already not do that, God? He did. But has anything really changed in Jacob's life? No. So it could be like, come on, ding dong. Don't you know that I renamed you Israel? Start acting like it. Start acting like it. Then God said to him, I am the sovereign God which is El Shaddai. Be fruitful, multiply. A nation, even a company of nations, will descend from you. Kings will be among your descendants. And the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, and I will give to you and to your descendants. And I will also give you this land. Then God went up from that place where he spoke to him. And so Jacob set up a sacred stone pillar in the place where God spoke to him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And then he poured oil on it. And Jacob named the place where God spoke to him Bethel. Now, notice how many times in the story God keeps reiterating his promises. It is so interesting that how many times, like he's always there constantly reminding you of his promises. More often he reminds you of the promises than there's any sense of judgment or consequences from him, which says something about his character too and the reminder there. But it's interesting when Jacob sets up this altar, he pours the oil on it, which once again, this kind of an altar is forbidden by Deuteronomy. This is more of an altar, a sacred site, not a monument that is to remind you of something that God had done, but he's actually making it an altar where there's going to be some kind of worship done there. And that is strictly forbidden by Deuteronomy. Now, he doesn't have the law yet. He may not know this yet. But the point that the narrator is making is that here's another example of a man who's not following the law, yet God is blessing him. And it doesn't matter whether he has the law or not, he's still not following the law, and God is blessing him. And that's a constant theme that keeps going throughout the Torah. So they traveled on from Bethel, and when um, Ephrath was still some distance away, Rachel went into labor, and her labor was hard. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you are giving birth to another son. And with her dying breath, she named him Ben-Anoi. His father called him Benjamin instead. So she names him son of my misery, son of my sorrow. And you can't really blame her too much. Like, 
childbirth is like one of the most painful things that there is, let alone when you're dying in the process of it. So she names him son of my misery. But Jacob turns around and names him Benjamin, which means son, Ben, and Benjamin of my right hand. And so the right hand is a symbol of power, authority, headship, ruling. And so this is very interesting that he is naming Benjamin the firstborn over all the sons that were born before him. And later in chapter 37, he's going to give Joseph a coat that is going to mark him as a higher, more ranking person than all the brothers. So once again, his favoritism, once again, just because he's repenting and he's changing, there's years that have to be sanctified of habits that have been ingrained into him. He's taking the two children after his wife's death and transferring the favoritism to them. And so Benjamin and Joseph are going to become the new favorites to the exclusion of everybody else now that Rachel is dead. And that's important to understand because that sets you up for chapter 37. And everything that's going to happen there is that this favoritism is now being transferred. And so she dies in childbirth. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a marker over her grave, and it is the marker of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel traveled on and pitched his tent between Migdal, Eder. While Israel was living in that land, Reuben had sexual relations with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. So this is strange and kind of sick and gross. So Reuben, winding their way back to decides to sleep with the maidservant of Rachel, which is basically the wife of Jacob. So Reuben sleeps with his father's wife. Now why? In the ancient world, to sleep with your father's wives, it usually was not uncommon for that to happen. If, you're, if you had a father who... <laughs> some of your looks are like, what? Um... If you had a father that was very powerful and he was the head of a tribe or a nation like a king, it was not uncommon to sleep with those wives, not your mom, but all the other wives, in order to seal your rank as the new head over that tribe or family. Because those wives represent um, wealth, they represent the headship over all the other sons, your brothers. And in kings, in the stance of kings, wives represent treaties. So as a king, if I have... Look, it's a very expensive to raise a family, let alone multiple wives and multiple children from each one of them. So if you're going to have multiple wives with multiple children, you're extremely wealthy. Wealth usually only comes with political power, which is connected to kingship. And so one of the things that kings would do in the ancient world is that they would make treaties by exchanging daughters. So if I want to make a treaty with the neighboring nation like Moab, I would give my daughter to that king in marriage, and that king would give his daughter to me in marriage. Then I would have children, and I have to have children, and I have to have a son to really seal the deal on the treaty. And what that means is I am less likely to invade you and violate your land 
when my daughter and my grandchildren are being provided for you and in that land. And so treaties can be violated all the time. I mean, America has violated every treaty that we've ever made because all it is is a signature on paper. But when you have family and blood in that, you're less likely. That doesn't mean nobody is evil enough to do that, but it's less likely than just a piece of paper. And so what you would do is when your father died, it was not uncommon for you then to take all your father's wives and sleep with all of them to kind of sign the treaties with your own signature and say that these things now belong to me. And by having sexual relations with all those wives, it also makes you the head over all their sons, which helps seal your deal with your headship over all those other sons, especially if you're not the firstborn son. Now, if you really want to get greedy and power hungry, then you probably just kill all your other brothers too to really seal that deal. And that's not uncommon. And so you see that. You see that when David becomes king, God makes it clear that David took all the wives of Saul when he became king. And Absalom, when we get the story, Absalom is David's son. And when David is on the run and Absalom's taking the throne by force, one of the things he does is he takes some of David's wives and he sets up a tent right on the roof of the palace, which is at the top of the hill, and everybody can look up, and he takes several of the wives of David into the tent and sleeps with them before David has even died, before he's even passed the kingship over, in order of his way to humiliate his father and show, what kind of a man are you? You can't even keep your wife, let alone your nation. I should be king now. And so probably what's going on here is Reuben is doing this. He is the firstborn son, and he is humiliating his father by sleeping with his wife and hopes to seize the headship by force. Now, to really do it well, he should be sleeping with Rachel, the favorite, but Rachel is dead. So he's not going to sleep with his mom because that's gross to whoever you are, even no matter what time in the ancient world. And he really can't do it with Zilpha because Zilpha belongs to Leah, so he'd be humiliating and shaming his mom. So the only thing he's left with is the concubine. And so in some ways, he tries to take it by force and shaming his father, but all he has is like the least of all the concubine wives, which is kind of a pathetic attempt. Now, I know that sounds like really bad when you're talking about something really gross and vile, but it's kind of a pathetic attempt. And you're going to see that from Reuben. Reuben always does these things, and he always kind of like pathetically fails at it. It's just not quite there. And so what would inspire him to do this at this moment? Maybe Benjamin's birth and being named son of my right hand makes it obvious to Reuben that he's not the right-hand son, and so he's had it up to here with his father's favoritism, and he decides to shame and defile his father's bed. But either way, it doesn't end up working. He doesn't end up grabbing headship. But it does shame Jacob, and it does threaten his power, and it does reveal his character. And so that's something that's really important to understand. And so this is an attempt to do that. And it will have consequences in the future when we get to chapter 49. However, right here... It just says Jacob heard about this, and that's it. Once again, just like with Dinah, rape, and Levi and Simeon killing the Shechemites, 
Jacob just doesn't do anything. He's passive. And as we see a little bit later in 49, many scholars are pointing out the fact that it might be a passivity on his part, or it could be a possibility a fear of his sons. That if you really remember that his sons are full grown, and they have power of their own now, and their own sheep and their own family, and there could be this sense that he doesn't do anything because he is afraid of his sons. And if you've got a son who's actually willing to do this, to try to shame you, try to take power and headship, then there could be a fear as an old man who is walking with a limp on a cane, and he's got to stand up against a younger man who could take him out. And in his heart and in actions has shown that he is willing to take his father out. And so it could be a passivity on a apathy passivity or a passivity in fear of what his sons might do in retaliation if he actually tries to exercise some kind of a headship. And so that could be what's going on here. And so there's this summary here of the sons. And this summary here lets you know that we're coming to the end, or we are at the end of the Jacob story. And then in chapter 36, we get the descendants of Esau, bringing that story to the end. So the fact that we have a genealogy of Jacob and a genealogy of Esau both shows you that this is the account of Isaac, meaning the things that come from Isaac. This wasn't just the story of Jacob. It was also the story of Esau, who played a major role there, and we get his genealogy there. Now, this genealogy brings an end to the Esau story, but it also shows God's faithfulness to honor the covenant promises of Esau. That he's making Esau into a great nation as well. Because he promised that Abraham's descendants would all become great nations. And he's honoring that promise. But Esau moves south of Canaan. And so once again, we see the incredible faithfulness of God to the covenant to multiply the descendants of Esau. But we see Esau also rejecting the covenant promises because he decides to live outside the land of promise. And the only person who chooses to live inside the land is Jacob. And so just like with Abraham, Abraham has multiple sons, and Isaac chooses to stay in the land, but Ishmael and Midian and all of them choose to live outside the land. It shows that God blesses them by honoring his promises and multiplying them, but they don't honor the covenant by leaving the land. And now we see the same thing with Isaac. Isaac is staying in the land, with, or his son Jacob is staying in the land, but Esau is leaving the land. And that's an important thing to understand here of why Esau, Ishmael, and Midian, though they became, become major players in the rest of the Torah and the Deuteronomic history, which is Joshua through Kings, they are not part of the covenant promises because they've chosen to live outside the land. The question is, if they chose to live in the land, would they have been just as equal with all the other tribes? We don't know. That's the genealogy of Esau in chapter 36. Any questions, insights? 